You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. My name is Mark Stout. I'm the museum historian here, for those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting before. Uh, And we're very fortunate today to have with us uh, Linda Cush. Linda is a freelance journalist and author in the Boston area, and her work has appeared in such varied venues as the Boston Globe and World War II magazine. Uh, But we're here today to talk about her first book, Rice Paddy Navy, U.S. Sailors Undercover in China. Uh, Linda's a a fine researcher and writer, as I think this book will show, but perhaps her biggest uh, preparation or most important preparation for writing about World War II may have been her reporting on uh, zoning battles in the Boston area, which I know is really serious, uh, brutal stuff. Um, I hope Linda's going to tell us a little bit today about how she came to discover this uh, really interesting topic and got inspired to write a book about it. Um, but, um, but I would say that while a great deal has been written, really an enormous amount of literature has been written about intelligence in World War II, uh, the vast majority of it pertains to the war in Europe and in North Africa. Uh, relatively little has been written about the war in the Pacific, and most of that deals with uh, signals intelligence or perhaps uh, even secondarily from that, uh, uh, intelligence support to General MacArthur. Very few books have been written about China, so Linda's contribution is especially valuable in that regard. Uh, Just briefly, I also want to make one other point about this book. Uh, This book's not only about the war in China, World War II in China, uh, and intelligence operations in China, but it's also a book about intelligence liaison, as we call it in the biz. Uh, Liaison is when the intelligence service of one country engages in a cooperative relationship with another country. Uh, And often we think about that um, in terms of of an exchange of information. So my secret intelligence information for your secret intelligence information, and certainly a great deal of that happens. Um, But Linda's book highlights, however, a different kind of intelligence liaison, one that involves an exchange of dissimilar things. 
So in her particular case here, Chiang Kai-shek provided the U.S. Navy access to China to conduct intelligence operations against Japan. And in exchange, uh, the U.S. Navy provides training and support for Chinese, anti, uh, for Chinese guerrilla forces, uh, not to mention pirates, which uh, everybody loves pirates, so I hope we'll hear a little bit about them as well today. So this is an asymmetric intelligence liaison, if you will. So I think we've got a great deal to learn from Linda. I know I certainly do, and I'm also confident that we'll, uh, we'll have some, some fun this afternoon. So ladies and gentlemen, Linda Cush. Hi, everybody, and I want to thank the Spy Museum for inviting me. This is a really great opportunity. And um, just to give you a little background, when I was growing up, once in a while, my father would make an incredible mess in the kitchen, spending the whole day cooking sweet and sour pork, of all things. And um, the results always disappointed him because what he was trying to do was duplicate the, the authentic dish that he had when he served in China in World War II. Um, he was a Navy man, and his mission in China was top secret. So he didn't talk about it very much, even years later. <laughs> and when he did, I have to admit I was a little confused. I couldn't understand what in the world the Navy was doing in China. And as it turns out, I wasn't the only one who wondered that. Um, decades after he died, I found out that Chief Shipfitter C.L. Cush was a member of the Sino-American Cooperative Organization, which is SACO for short, and it is nicknamed the Rice Paddy Navy. And it turns out that uh, what the hell was the Navy doing here was one of the things that Sacco's heard so often in China that it actually became what the hell their unofficial slogan, and you see in this patch here, the, that pennant in the middle, that basically means, what the hell. <laughs> so what business did the Navy have there? Imagine a bone-chilling January day in 1944 on the edge of the Gobi Desert in Inner Mongolia. Twelve U.S. Navy guys are freezing trying to set up a radio tower and the western wind that is buffeting them is carrying information about what the weather is going to be in the Pacific a few days later. And that information was of utmost importance to the United States Navy. Those 12 and about 15 other U.S. Navy personnel were in China for four main missions. First of all, to feed weather forecasts to the U.S. Pacific Fleet, Secondly, to monitor Japanese radio traffic. If you recall, the Japanese had actually occupied China since the 1930s, so they were already there. They were preparing for a proposed Navy invasion of China to chase the Japanese out, and they were supposed to be harassing the occupation in any way they possibly could. And that fourth mission led to the fifth. <clears throat> they ended up establishing training camps all over China um, so that they could turn thousands of Chinese soldiers, shopkeepers, and pirates into guerrilla fighters, spies, and saboteurs. And they went out in the field with them in these missions. And as a matter of fact, my father was one of the teachers of these Chinese soldiers. And as he said, he taught them to set off explosives and run like hell. 
Right after Pearl Harbor, the Navy started making plans to send Commander Milton E. Miles to China on a secret mission under direct orders of um, Fleet Commander Ernest King and under the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Miles got to, Ch to Chongqing in May of 1942, and he reported to General Dai Li, who was the head of the Nationalist Chinese Intelligence at the time, and also Chiang Kai-shek's right-hand man. Here, Dai Li and Milton Miles are uh, together on Christmas Day, 1942, in Chongqing at Sako headquarters, which was called Happy Valley, but no one knows how it got that name. <coughs> By this time, Dai and Miles had developed a remarkable friendship that had become the foundation of Sako. <clears throat> General Dai was the man that Chiang Kai-shek appointed to uh, work with the Americans, but the Army and the State Department were not at all happy about this. Um, to say that Dai Li was despised would be an understatement. And here's a little about him from the book. <clears throat> Dai's authority was effective but brutal. He, to he tolerated no insubordination, and with constant enemy infiltration of his agency, he was ever on the lookout for traitors. He expected the same uncompromising loyalty to himself as he bestowed on Chiang Kai-shek. Mistakes could cost his agents verbal reprimand, imprisonment, or execution, depending on their severity. Dai's biographer, Frederick, Frederick Wakeman, estimated that during the course of his reign, Dai had 2,000 of his own agents killed. But every agent knew the rules and broke them at their peril. There was nothing arbitrary about these punishments. In a bizarre twist on patriotism, <coughs> Dai would order the executions and then preside over ceremonies honoring those he had killed as heroes who had given their lives for the sake of the Bureau's integrity. Dai Li's suspicious nature was one detail of the U.S. State Department's profile of him that rang true for miles, but it never served the gen <clears throat> but it served the general well in a chaotic place and time. Growing up under a fragmented government complete with expedient but rancorous political coalitions and a relentless stream of coups and deadly double crosses, Dai always suspected that people were concealing their true agendas. To ferret out traitors, real or imagined, he assigned some of his employees to spy on others, creating what amounted to an informal secret agency within his official secret agency. His, suspicious, uh, his suspicions prompted him to cultivate an aura of mystery, in part for the sake of his own security, since he was a perpetual target of assassin assassination attempts by the Japanese, communists, and political rivals. He avoided being photographed, never spoke in public, and refused to speak to journalists. During official meetings, he sometimes sat silently in a dark corner and disappeared without a word. To keep his whereabouts secret, he owned at least a dozen homes scattered throughout the country, including three in Chongqing, and only a handful of people knew where he was sleeping on any given night. Although mysterious, Dai Li's reputation for ruthlessness was known all over China. 
the public also knew him as the boss, and his name became a trump card to get thieves to hand over stolen goods or children to behave. In the popular culture, he was the boogeyman, the universal monster. Dai possessed tremendous physical and mental stamina, often working for days without sleep, yet remaining attentive and sharp. This multifaceted man struck terror in his political and military opponents, inspired affection and loyalty in his friends, and impressed his American partners with his ability to accomplish near miracles out of nothing. Mao Chun Yu, professor of East Asia and military history at the US Naval Academy and a leading expert on 20th century China, summed up China's mystery man like this. Dai Li was not lily white by any stretch of the imagination, but as a military intelligence man, he was very effective. Frederick Wakeman ends his exhaustive biography of Dai with the confession that after 10 years of research, he still cannot categorically state whether Dai was a good or a bad man. At one of many banquets that Dai threw for the American Sockos at Happy Valley, he made an emotional speech about his complicated reputation, referring to a critical, oft-repeated moniker, the Himmler of China, and insisting that he believed firmly in democracy. He said, I am not a Himmler. I am the Generalissimo's Dai Li and nothing more. <clears throat> the what the hell pennant goes back years before the war. Milton Miles made it for a Navy prank, but he used it later in China to get himself out of a very tough spot. And the passage I'm going to read now starts off with Miles and his uh, Sako subordinates choosing a symbol, which ended up being the, the um, what the hell pennant. Miles suggested the gag pennant that he had designated to hoist during maneuvers eight years earlier as executive officer aboard the USS Wilkes. With three question marks, three exclamation points, and three asterisks in red on a white field, it meant, what the hell? The group agreed. The pennant was raised above Happy Valley and flew until the end of the war. But the Japanese Navy had seen this pennant years earlier. In 1939, stationed in China as captain of the US destroyer John D. Edwards, Miles had ordered Miles was ordered to check on some American missionaries on Hainan Island, where the Japanese Navy was preparing to land. When the destroyer arrived at the island, a sizable Japanese fleet was bombarding the port city. Seeing the American ship, the command, in, the command vessel sent up an international signal flag, meaning, turn around and go away. Determined to contact his stranded Americans, Miles hoisted his own what-the-hell pennant in reply and proceeded cautiously into the bay. A confused Japanese admiral, unable to interpret the pennant, halted the bombardment and sent a reconnaissance craft whose officer shouted, you can't anchor here. Miles answered, you're right, I'd rather anchor closer to shore, and he continued to make his way toward land. As the frustrated officer raced back to report to his commander, the John D. Edwards dropped anchor, <clears throat> and Miles took a party ashore to complete his mission. Before leaving, 
Miles made the customary courtesy call to the Japanese admiral who asked him the meaning of the unfamiliar signal flag he had raised. Miles would only reply that the admiral's code book must be out of date. <laughs> but the story didn't even end there. Six months later, when stationed in Washington, Miles received an inquiry about the strange pennant. Originating with the Japanese admiral, he had, it had bounced from desk to desk through the Navy and the State Department and random, randomly landed at the Interior Control Board. Miles's reply never made it back to the admiral. Given the pennant's storied history and the seat-of-the-pants conditions under which the new outfit was formed, it was a fitting symbol for Sacco. In order for the Navy, for, for the Sako operation to work, it had to be a loose operation carried out by men who were good at doing things by the seat of their pants. And Miles had a particular kind of person in mind for this work. And uh, here is how he explained it to his coordinator back in Washington, a guy named Captain Jeffrey Metzel. Miles described his ideal candidate to Metzel. He wanted to recruit men who were solid, but in his words, a little crazy. He was looking for adventurous, talented, adaptable people who could withstand both hardship without becoming resentful and frustration without growing discouraged, and they had to do it all willingly. He needed men who were mission-oriented rather than process-oriented. Someone who worked best following regulations right out the window would not be able to function in the freewheeling outfit that he meant to build. No high-hat, red-tape clerks allowed, he wrote to Metzel. Another specification he made that never held up was that uh, he originally planned to forbid drinking alcohol and to recruit men who were willing to abstain. While Miles was known to enjoy an occasional drink, he particularly abhorred the phrase drunken sailor and hoped to prevent any problems with alcohol. But judging from stories Sacco's told about the cups of wine they were expected to gulp down at Dai Li's parties, that idea must have been abandoned rather early on. Booze and bars weren't the only things Sacco men would have to do without. Miles's team would have to go long stretches without coffee, chocolate, and big band music. He needed people who could live in China as it was and not expect America to be flown over the hump for their pleasure. Superior job skills were essential, too. Sentinels perched on lonely crags at the coast and technicians launching weather instruments on windblown plateaus would need to be resourceful and able to double up on duties. And with no one to back them up, they would have to be able to deliver results on their own. One qualification, therefore, was for each man to have more than one job skill and perhaps a useful hobby. In other words, Milton Miles was looking for men in his own image, although he never said so. He was a man who had hoisted a homemade pennant and sailed boldly into a foreign seaport under enemy, enemy bombardment traveled against expert advice with three little boys over the remote Burma Road while it was still under construction, and promised Dai Li that the United States would make an army out of thousands of farmers and shopkeepers without so much as a telegram to his boss in Washington asking for advice. He was irreverent, fearless, versatile, and multi-talented, but simultaneously squeaky clean. 
With a few hundred more men just like himself, he could deliver everything that General Dai Li and Ernest King had asked for. The training camps in China were actually General Dai's idea. If his country was going to be giving Navy, the Navy support staff and security for their weather and spy stations, he wanted something in return. And he desperately needed uh, modern weapons and men trained to use them. So Sako set up the camps as close to the Japanese as they dared and in locations that were, th that were within a few days' march of Shanghai Shek's forces who were actually going to be trained at the camps. Sako actually built 13 in all, but the last three opened at when the war was almost over, so they don't figure in very much in the Sako story. <clears throat> Just about every American member of Sako had to be a teacher at least part-time, covering everything from photography to street fighting to marksmanship. And every camp had a firing range, and almost every trainee learned to shoot and maintain firearms, <coughs> and then they received an American main gun of their own when they graduated. For Dai Li, this was one of the most important points of the whole Sako arrangement. The Navy couldn't get enough of its own men to do the spy and weather operations fast enough, so some of the Chinese, some of Dai's best men, were trained to do this job alongside the Americans. I'm not sure where in China this slide was taken, but you see um, a Chinese guard standing, the soldier with the gun over his shoulder, and um, the weather balloon is being launched by, I can't tell if this is a Chinese or an American, because a lot of Americans at this time wore the Chinese quilted suit, especially in cold weather. But uh, that is definitely an American Navy guy supervising the whole thing. And here, the Chinese are being trained to operate American field radios. Radio communication was at the heart of the entire Sako operation. Not only were they intercepting radio messages that the Japanese were uh, sending out, but they were using radio to uh, feed their information to Chongqing about weather and intelligence. One of the most effective spy operations was the coast watching program, but it was also the most dangerous. Here's the story of a Navy coast watcher who was captured by the Japanese, one of three American Sakos who fell into enemy hands, and it takes place on Songsu Point, which is overlooking the city of Xiamen. A lot of Japan's shipping came through the Formosa Strait here, so this was a very important um, coast watching operation. And the coast watch stations were supported by headquarters not far inland at Changchu there. You see that's the little dot right next to Xiamen. And that also figures into this story here. Coast watching was the loneliest and most dangerous job in Sako, earning those who performed it the awe and accolades of their colleagues. Here more than anywhere else, Amer Americans worked to blend in with the scenery, wearing Chinese clothes and imitating Chinese body language in their gait and posture. A typical day for a coast watcher began before dawn and ended when it grew too dark to see. 
He sat on his perch looking and taking notes with occasional forays to the docks and shallows below to confer with Diley's agents. Every vessel and its movement, whether exciting or mundane, was recorded. The Japanese constantly scoured the shore for these lookout posts, forcing Sako men to move frequently, sometimes with only a minute's notice. Sergeant William M. Stewart, USMC, was the first lone American working with two Chinese radio operators and a Chinese aerologist as a um, coast watcher, and he had a commanding view of Xiamen Harbor from Songsu Point. This, <clears throat> the station became a legendary site of inspiring success, tragedy, and betrayal. Radio man second class Alfred Parsons and J.H. Lively relieved Stewart in December and collaborated daily with Chinese Army Captain Lin Shi Fong, who kept watch on Elephant Mountain about a mile southwest of Sung Su Point. Beginning in mid-December, the three lookouts noticed a Japanese patrol boat poking around near tiny Whale Island, where Parsons and Lively often ventured about 150 yards from the boat pier at Sung Su Point. On December 14th, the boat came within 100 yards of the point, drawing fire from Sako's Chinese guards. Six days later, a gunboat anchored beside the island for 10 minutes and then turned around and left. Lynn, Parsons, and Lively grew suspicious of these vessels and decided to investigate. On the morning of December 21st, Lynn and Parsons headed for Whale Island in a rowboat with two Chinese boatmen at the oars. In addition to the ubiquitous binoculars, Parsons packed a camera, a hand grenade, and a pistol. The plan was for Parsons and Lynn to take the trail to the highest point on the island for a better view of the waters on the far side, and meanwhile, Lively would cover them from a, with a high-powered rifle from the pier. After landing on the island, Lynn and Parsons had begun their ascent when gunshots rang out and a dozen Japanese soldiers came charging along the beach toward the path. Lively squeezed off four shots and saw three of the Japanese fall, but the others kept going as a second group dashed out from the other side of the island and they all converged on the path and overtook the two Sakos. The soldiers dragged the pair to the gunboy to the gunboat waiting on the far side of the island, and it hightailed it for Xiamen. Powerless to help them, Lively moved to a, how, to a higher lookout to watch the outcome before retreating to safer ground, radio headquarters, and receiving instructions to withdraw to Changchao. Sako abandoned Sung Su Point immediately. Parsons and Lin were packed off to Xiamen, but never saw each other again. The Japanese released Lin in October 1945. Parsons was imprisoned briefly on Formosa and then transferred blindfolded to Ofama Prison Camp, 30 miles from Yokohama, Japan, where he was held until the end of the war. With the abrupt closing of Sungsu Point, a favorite middle-aged cook, Wang Chu, a refugee from Xiamen, was out of a job, the latest chapter in his sad story. His city had been set on a tragic downward course immediately after Japan captured it in 1938. Cut off from the rest of China by land and from the outside world by sea, the trading port had begun to die of economic starvation. Residents fled inland. 
Wang arrived at Sungsu Point, desperate for work, in October 1944, and Stewart hired him. The MBIS, that was the secret agency that uh, Dai Li ran, typically ran background checks on all new employees, which included a hearing before a local magistrate. Wang's hearing was weeks away, and in the meantime, he was supposed to be detained in the local jail, but Stewart had been friendly with the cook and convinced the MBIS to let him stay on while, while the investigation progressed. When the Sangsu Point staff retreated to headquarters in Chongqiao after Parsons was captured, Wang came along and was given a job at the headquarters kitchen. In February 1945, an MBIS investigator discovered that Wang had attended a Japanese spy school on Formosa. Alarmed that he could potentially poison the entire staff, MBIS agents immediately had him sent into town on the pretext of buying food, and as soon as he was taken outside the compound walls, they jumped him. A search of his room uncovered 31,000 yuan in large bills, six vials of poison, and a stash of American cigarettes presumably used to win small favors from unsuspecting Chinese. His exposure led to the arrest of a spy ringleader in the city of Chongqiao. The MBIS never absolutely proved a connection between Wang and the captures of Parsons and Lin, but they believed that he had facilitated them, and it was a chilling lesson to the Americans who were susceptible to sob stories and friendly faces. They came to appreciate the seemingly hard-nosed policies of Dai Li's security staff. The Navy was enormously pleased with Sako, but other uh, U.S. officials, particularly the State Department and the Army, as I had mentioned earlier, were not thrilled with what Milton Miles was doing in China. You can chalk a lot of that up to um, just normal inter-service rivalry and jealousy, but they actually did have a point. Um, Dai Li was a remarkable man, but he had a very shady side, and he hooked up the Navy with some very shady characters working hand-in-hand, -hand, including thousands of pirates. And here is the story about that. A popular comic strip, Terry and the Pirates by Milton Kniff, depicted a young American adventurer in search of a gold mine in China who got mixed up with Chinese pirates and warlords and Terry's main adversary, the powerful and sensuous Dragon Lady. In the grand tradition of the comics, Terry always avoided disaster with the help of his Chinese cook and translator, Connie, and a lovable Mongolian giant. Shortly before Pearl Harbor, Terry abandoned the treasure hunt and joined the struggle against the Japanese as a U.S. fighter pilot on the, um, basically on the lines of Chenault. The Sino-American Cooperative Organization has often been compared to the comic strip. Like Terry and his partner, Sacco's poked along the Chinese coast and rivers and roamed through the an exotic landscape, narrowly escaping danger with the help of their good-hearted, heroic Chinese who became their fast friends. Terry and the Pirates, rip-roaring fantasy though it was, had a basis in truth. Piracy has a rich history in China, going back at least to the 14th century, with some 70,000 participants at its peak in the early 1800s. Chang Guifong and Chang Yuchao 
pirate leaders of the World War II era weathered China's 20th century chaos by offering loyal service to anyone who would take their business. Combined, their circles numbered nearly 10,000 men. Dai Li worked out a deal with the two leaders, giving them free reign of the lucrative opium trade in their sections of the Chinese coast in exchange for serving as Dai's eyes and ears in their territories and doing occasional jobs for him. In addition, both pirate kings received payment from the Japanese, as well as impressive military titles and Japanese staff who in truth were occupying their headquarters and monitoring their every move. In the spring of 1944, a meeting with the buccaneers became a priority after Admiral King told Miles to be ready for the U.S. Navy to land on the China coast by December. With coast watch stations planned in pirate territory, it was essential that the pirates be informed and perhaps even recruited to work with Sako observers Moreover, Miles was hoping to enlist them as guerrilla soldiers. <clears throat> Dai Li arranged a secret conference in May 1944 with pirate representatives of a, at a place called Tong Fung. Miles, Lieutenant Seth Sai Morris, and Eddie Liu, Miles's translator, traveled for two weeks from Chongqing by truck horseback and on foot to meet Dai and 12 other Chinese generals at a lovely old temple. The first pirate to join them, representing Chang Guifeng, was a taciturn man with a long drooping mustache, an Ichabod crane physique, and a battered brown felt hat. Two days later, two short stocky men in black baggy fishermen's suits reported on behalf of Chang Yi Chao. With everyone assembled at last around a conference table, Dai Li introduced Miles as Brigadier General of the Sea, Winter Plum Blossom, invoking a rough equivalent of the English term Commodore along with the Chinese name Dai Li had given him. All three pirates rose from their seats and bowed in deference to a mighty fellow seafarer. The pirates had come to the table hoping to gain legitimacy in eyes of the emperor. Isolated from mainstream society, they were unaware that China no longer, no longer had an emperor, but such details did not matter to them. They simply desired to return to the good graces of the national leader, whether emperor, chairman, president, or generalissimo. <clears throat> to achieve this, they asked to be placed on the tax rolls in the belief that paying taxes would automatically anoint them as law-abiding citizens of China. In exchange, they were eager to attack and expel their Japanese handlers and intended to take over all the lighthouse islands along the coast to keep the Japanese from returning. Dai said the time had not yet come to turn, in, to turn on the Japanese. The pirates would be far more useful if they continued to keep up the, pre the pretense of serving them even as they performed as Sako agents. It would allow them to spy on the Japanese up close without arousing any suspicion. The pirates also needed Miles's help to stop American planes from bombing their junks. They had been caught in several attacks against Japanese boats at the cost of two junks sunk, two damaged, and several lives lost. A radio identification system proved impossible because most of the pirate boats lacked the equipment. 
Instead, Miles worked out with the 14th Air Force to establish specific safe havens where no junk under any circumstances would be bombed, so the pirates knew to head to those areas when an attack was imminent or when anchoring for the night. Miles and I pro proposed several operations. First, to enlist an already established crew of teenage girl bicycle couriers in Shanghai who worked for a woman pirate officer in the Brethren of the Green Circle. Each girl, ostensibly an ordinary bicycle messenger, carried a second folding bike so that she could smuggle someone out of the city, such as a compromised spy or an escaped prisoner. They wanted to train and arm pirates as guerrillas at Sako training camps opening in the coming weeks, and these guerrillas would operate on land and sea. They also wanted to coordinate spying activities among both pirate groups and Sako's new Coast Watch stations. The pirate representatives assented to everything, especially the training camps, because they were still using guns left over from the, the Russo-Japanese War of the 1905, <clears throat> and they were very eager to replace these obsolete weapons. Before the meeting broke up, the pirates produced vials of garlic water and made slow circuits around the table, sprinkling the officers as a priest would administer holy water. In their tradition, garlic sealed bonds between people and had protective powers, even from bullets. There will be no bullets between us, the three pirates vowed in unison. Well, I hope I've given you some idea of what Sako's all about, and I wish I had had a chance to talk about it to my father, but I have had the honor of corresponding with several of the surviving Sako veterans, and I have to tell you that they are delighted with this book. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. We've got time for questions, but if, if I could, I'm going to assert my prerogative and if we can get you back to the microphone so we can... <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll, we'll entertain questions here in a moment, but first let me just ask, do you have any sense of um, ultimately how important in terms of its contributions to the overall uh, war effort SACO was? It seems to have operated uh, quite well internally, but it, did it turn out to be ultimately a, a big contribution to the war, sort of a sidelight? Uh, how would you assess its utility? I think it was actually both. There were, um, I wish I could say that I Can dug into Can we get you closer all, to the microphone? Right? Oh. <laughs> I wish I could say that I dug into um, all of the ramifications of it, but there were quite a few um, successful hits. And for one thing, their weather information had um, some impact, which I don't fully understand, on Leyta Gulf, was, which was a huge turning point for the war. <clears throat> and they also found out, when the war was almost over, that all of the allies were sharing their weather reports. Uh, they found this out at a conference that they went to um, of meteorologists in the Pacific Rim. And um, they had, they had some, uh, quite a bit of success supporting submarines with the uh, intelligence, and in particular, um, Admiral Flucky, Lucky Flucky, um, tells a couple of stories about coordination between Milton Miles himself and some of the Coast Watchers. Right here. I'm curious as to whether uh, Sacco had any links with the OSS in, in the Far East, the Office of Strategic Services under General Stilwell. 
Indeed, they did, as a matter of fact. Milton Miles, um, um, first of all, Donovan, William Donovan, was very interested in getting into China, and he was thwarted everywhere, every which way. So he actually worked out a deal to make Milton Miles the OSS coordinator of the Far East, but there was bad chemistry. Um, Donovan was one of the people who did not like Dai Li worth the darn, and um, it ended up in, as a disaster for both men, but it did help OS, the OSS get a foothold in China. So there's quite a bit about that in the book. Uh, lady right here, if you'd wait for the microwave. What was the age range of uh, all the members in, in Saka? Um, the, uh, they were as young as 19. Uh, the photographer who actually took quite a number of the photos that I showed there was 19 years old when he showed up in Chongqing. And uh, quite, uh, quite amazing. And um, my father was 26, and he was kind of considered an old guy, but there, but there were some marine officers who were quite a bit older. Milton Miles himself was 40 when he first got there, and they really thought he was an old man, and they were quite surprised that he could uh, march for days and climb mountains and everything right alongside them. Other questions? Right here, gentlemen on the aisle, if you'll wait for the microphone, please. Linda, it's a great book. I was looking at it and uh, appreciate very much your presentation. A lot of Americans, and World War II is one of my fascinating subjects that I've been studying all my life, a lot of Americans are, aren't aware of what happened in China during the war. And the fact that the Japanese were conducting major offensives in 1944 and taking territory mm -hmm. and forcing, even taking American uh, uh, aircraft uh, bases, uh, and, and this was something that a lot of people weren't aware of. Uh, was Sako ever in danger from any kind of Japanese military activities uh, during, during this period? As a matter of fact, they had to move their camps many times. And one of the ones that they had to move the most was the one where my father served. It was called Camp 2. It moved, I think, six times during the war. And um, there, you'll, uh, if you read the book, there is an incident where several Sakos got caught up in the major Jap Japanese push. Um, the Japanese brought 400,000 or so soldiers right through the center of China because they were trying to cut off Chongqing. And they were somewhat successful, but I believe that Sako was one of the only American outfits that was able to hang on because they were so widespread and thinly spread, it was easy for a group of 15 guys to hole up in a cave or something and continue operating. And that's what they did. Other questions? Okay, Linda will be uh, in the back signing books, but let's once again thank her for a fascinating talk. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. 
It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.